Welcome to Core Parenting Conversations. My name is Kaylee Kukla, and I've spent more than a decade supporting children and families with challenging behaviors. As a mom of three, I appreciate how overwhelming and exhausting parenthood can often be. So I'm taking all of my professional knowledge coming from over a decade of work experience with my master's degree in early childhood special education and combining it with real mom life, not just the theory, to change the dialogue around parenting. We'll have powerful conversations and you'll gain practical tools that will inspire you to get to the heart or the core of your child's behavior and make simple, yet impactful changes. So let's dive in together. Today's core conversation comes from inside the core membership during one of our Q&A sessions. A parent wrote in asking about how to handle her son's refusal to participate in his team's soccer practice, despite appearing to have fun during the first game. I discussed some mindset shifts that adults can make around organized sports in early childhood that really don't just apply to sports, but any new experience that may cause a child to become standoffish, resistant, or rigid, whiny. Maybe they hide behind you. I think we've all probably been there one time or another with our children. When we shift our mindset, we move from judgment, annoyance, frustration, embarrassment, which this mom actually cites, and I just so appreciate her authenticity in that, but we can shift from that into trust, acceptance, understanding, and support. To translate that shift for this situation, if we trust the child to enter experiences at their own pace, we're more likely to be able to meet them where they are and go at a pace that will help them gain their own confidence, which is ultimately a a big goal of these experiences, and stay open to the experience instead of actively or increasingly try to resist it. With that in mind, let's dive into this core conversation. Welcome to the Q&A for today. We will go ahead and dive in. We have a lot of topics. Y'all came with a lot of questions this week, which I love, and a wide variety, which gives, we can pull in a lot of different um, mindsets, a lot of different information and techniques. And really, there's a lot of common threads too. So what I like to do is I like to kind of point all those things out. So the nuances that can easily get lost on social media, and also kind of the big picture and common threads of of all these little just challenges and behaviors that happen with our children. So because there's so many, I have a document, a list, but I also want to pull up the actual questions so I can make sure that I'm doing a really good job of staying on topic and answering your actual questions. All right. So question number one was refusing to participate in sports. I love this question. And this has come up before. This is not the first time. And I have actually counseled several private clients about this and friends about this. And I have three boys. And I think that, you know, we're in an age now my children's age, where there becomes this pressure of like, you have to pick a sport or you have to play a sport. And and not just for boys, but all children, all including girls, whether it's a sport or an activity, it feels very high stakes and high pressure at a very young age. And so the question was, 
signed my five-year-old up for soccer for the first time. First week, he did great. Said he didn't like it, but he was smiling the whole time. Last week, he had a sub and would not participate. So I'm assuming a substitute coach um, stood there with his arms crossed. Not going to lie. And let me just tell you, I love this real talk from this mom. I so I like relate and appreciate this. It felt, I felt a little dysregulated and I think I felt embarrassed. I told him he needed to participate or we would need to leave. We left. Not screaming or anything, but we left. Looking back, I wish I would have just sat with him until he was ready to join. Tips. Okay. Yeah. Before I give you any tips, I just want to validate, like, you realized what you wish you would have done differently without any more coaching information, anything. And your intuition here, what you wish you would have done is spot on. And I'll explain why and explain, okay, we can talk about what to do in the moment. But so much of this is just about that mindset. Um, and the energy we're bringing to it and us realizing let's normalize this experience so that it's easier for us to regulate through it in that moment. Okay. So I want to first change, and this is very countercultural, especially depending on the town where you live, the city where you live, where you live, because I find that this is pretty countercultural, even in my area, we need to rethink and shift how we think about the purpose of kids sports especially three four five six seven eight (laughs) yes even eight year olds and nine year olds and ten year olds this elementary early childhood and elementary school age sports is about building exposure it's about the experience it's about exposure it's about trying it out it's not about what kind of even team player you are because quite honestly at five years old kids don't understand team playership sportsmanship that's not a skill that they have yet you know they've just figured out and they're still figuring out pretend interactive play there are still some kids at this age who have a really difficult time with board games let alone a fast-paced semi-organized sport like soccer So I just, or basketball or any of those, they they move super fast. Even, you know, when kids are playing t-ball and that's not a super fast sport, but because there's those, you know, they might be the kids that are in the sand drawing pictures. There's nothing wrong with that. They're still gleaming so much from that experience. They're learning about a sport. They're learning about their interests. They're building a concrete background knowledge of what is baseball. You know, if if they sit and they watch a baseball game on the TV or they see baseball in a book, why is that dirt red or orange? You know, what does that feel like? I mean, stuff like that is background knowledge that is so important for children to be exposed to during early childhood so that as they're getting older, they have a really solid foundation of information to form their own identity, form their interests, have a frame of reference just in regular conversation with people. So we've first got to just shift from the purpose of kids sports. And sometimes observation is a really, really important first step. So he had a semi-decent time the first time, didn't really love it, right? He told you, did smile, and maybe it wasn't a nervous smile. It could have been a nervous or uneasy smile, but maybe it really was a pleasure smile. I'm enjoying this. 
but maybe there was some pleasure mixed with nervousness. I'm enjoying this, but I don't really know what to think. Brene Brown has this great concept I love that she applies to not just adults, but also children. And it's called an FFT, an effing first time. And any time we're doing it, you know, it's an FFT. It's this effing first time draft. We've never done anything before. And it's so difficult to do something for the first time because it's very vulnerable, right? We don't feel super confident in it. We're not super sure of what we're going to do. We don't know how it's going to go. We might make a mistake. And now we add in this whole idea of kids sports. These kids are doing this, this vulnerable thing with concepts that they don't developmentally fully understand yet, not just social and cognitively, but also motor skills. You know, five-year-olds, there's a wide range of growth motor and fine motor abilities and coordination with five-year-olds, huge. And with all people, but especially at five years old, like some kids are, you know, just taking the ball while they're moving is going to be a huge undertaking for them. And they're doing it in front of an audience. These games, so actually, and I'll share with you how we kind of scaffold this in, in our home, that my son, who's almost nine, just started playing on soccer team in our local league. And I went to his first soccer game and I was sitting there and he has on his team, several children are playing. This is their first season. So they've had, I don't know, like three to four practices maybe. And now they're on a field with a wide range of ability and the sidelines are full of parents watching. And I remember sitting there thinking, these kids are so brave. I wouldn't want a huge audience watching me do something for the first time. And here they are doing it for the first time with all of their peers watching, all of these parents watching. Their coaches are yelling, you know, cues and directions at them. Like, this is so much for these kids to take on. And they're doing it so beautifully. I was so impressed with these kids. And I just really hope that they got that messaging of how courageous that really is. And these were older kids. These were eight, nine, and 10-year-olds. So if you have a younger child that is more timid to try these things, you sign them up. When we as a parent are consciously making the decision to sign our children up, we are paying for them to have the exposure and experience And that might mean participating in a variety of ways. And it might not be the traditional way that we are envisioning when we choose to sign them up for that sport. We've got to be intentional about that when we are handing the payment over, when we are signing them up. It might be the experience of they go and they they watch a few games, they watch a few practices and they decide completely overwhelmed. This is not for me. And now that lesson has cost you 200 something dollars. That's the risk we are taking when we decide to sign ourselves up. That's sign our children up for sport. That is a part of the experience. So just getting our mindset and wrapping our mind around that and practicing that acceptance of whatever happens with our children when they're signed up and they're doing it is so important. And that's really step one. Now let's talk about the value of watching people. And I'm going to do that in two ways. I'm going to talk about my own experience as an adult doing this because I still do this often. And also the stages of play and how children learn how to interact 
from infancy on up through early childhood and why we might see that come up again as they're trying new things. So me as an adult, if I'm walking into a space where this might be a new place, like let's take something I did pre-COVID, I haven't really done it because COVID happened and then, you know, pregnant and have a baby and so I'm kind of sitting on the sidelines and my career kind of changed, but going into business networking events. So I attended some of these things pre-COVID and I'd walk in and I don't know any of these women. I maybe know like one or two, like the person who invited me and that's it. These are all new people and it's a new environment. You know, I'm used to being around kids (laughs) and I'm used to being in classrooms, in homes, working one-on-one. I wasn't used to being a business woman. And, and networking with other business women who might have more businessy jobs like accounting, finance, you know, like more traditionally professional things than what I consider what I do. It's uncomfortable and I don't quite know what to do, where to go, who to talk to, how to act, right? So I'm going to kind of stand off to the side and watch and observe, take the temperature of the room, see where the good food is. Where do I get the drink? You know, where do I find the water? Who am I going to talk to? What table should I sit down at? You know, which table seems like they don't know other people too. So maybe I can sit with them and fit into that experience. I do that too. I'm taking it all in. And that is an incredibly great quality and practice to develop as an adult. Right. And so if our children are naturally doing that, they're naturally kind of watching the situation unfold, watching, you know, who should I go up to first? What am I supposed to do? What is this coach? So maybe he had a substitute coach. He had only experienced it the way this one coach presented it to him. Now he's kind of watching how does this sub interact with the kids? What is his expectation here? What am I supposed to be doing during this practice? This is different than last time. What's the same? Okay, so he's taking in a lot of information. And then there's a lot of value in that. If we think about the play stages, developmentally speaking, so when infants, their play is solitary, they're getting to know themselves first. Then you have parallel play. So children play side by side. They're not interacting yet. There's value in that. We're expanding our own play, our solitary play. We're sharing space with one another, maybe even like we trade or or pass off the toy that we're playing with. And then we get more into associative and interactive play. Okay, so that's the natural progression of just kid, typical kid play. Now we're talking about an organized sport, which is a high reach for most kids. And maybe so their solitary experience is just sitting and watching. And then they're going to move up and maybe they do want to do the practice drills where it's like parallel play before they get into that interactive situation. So I would say knowing all of this, I think the mindset shift is key for what is the purpose of kids sports. It may not match up with what we envision when we sign our child up. The value of it may not be them enthusiastically running on the field every time you show up to practice or a game. It may be just learning about the game, watching the game, deciding if they like it or not, deciding how that pressure situation feels to them and their body. Are they able to regulate through that and work through it and still play something they really want? Or maybe soccer is something they just rather play at home. 
you know, our the way we kind of scaffold the exposure to sports, soccer in particular in our house, was he did not want to play organized soccer for years. So we started, dad grew up playing soccer. So he started playing soccer in the front yard, just kicking the ball by himself, then kicking the ball back and forth with dad. Then he started watching friends on the playground playing soccer. Then he stood in the middle of the soccer game, quote unquote, playing with them. But I watched a couple of times. He was just standing there watching. <laughs> but it was, you know, kids organize the soccer game on the playground. Then he started playing a little more interactively during the game. Then he came home and said he wanted to sign up for this. It's like a foundational skills soccer class. So the most they played was like one-on-one, two-on-one with the coach, you know, working on technique and, and fundamental skills. And then it was finally, you know, he wanted to play on a team and the more traditional soccer experience that most people think of. That's how we worked up and we built the exposure. And I also said when the first time I signed one son up for T-ball, the first time I signed the other one up for soccer, I said, I'm signing you up. And there's, I don't know, eight, 10 weeks, however long the seasons are. And the expectation is you're committing to a team that you're going to be there. So even if you decide you don't like it, we're still going to go and show up because you're a part of the team. So I kind of front loaded it. Now that doesn't guarantee that it was going to be an easy thing. Then I'm committing as an adult. Okay, this is 10 weeks where we're just trying it out. And I have no idea what it's going to be like. So I'm setting the expectation, but I don't know how that's going to go. I don't know how my child is going to meet it if they're going to be willing to meet it. So that's how the mindset shift kind of helps and enters into that. And the other piece of the mindset shift is also valuing whatever the child is capable of doing in that new experience that you're offering Um, and taking that information to decide, is this something we want to do again? Yes or no? So that's question number one about the soccer struggle. It's very relatable. This comes up every year, especially the beginning of the school year, beginning of sports teams happening. And I just think there's this discrepancy between the parents' expectation and reality, what really happens, um, and truly meeting them where they are. This core conversation is made possible through Kaylee's core membership program. If you find yourself soaking up the information in this podcast and others, but still grapple with questions like, how do I get my kid to listen? What happens when I try that and it doesn't work? Or if you just crave like-minded and like-hearted parents who are also on this wild parenthood journey, you found your place in core. I take the theories and strategies and I'm constantly adapting them and applying them to real life through monthly deep dives, handouts, workbooks, and live Q&As. So if you want to take your parenting with intention to the next level, or you just need more support, check out CORE at www.kayleekukla.com backslash C-O-R or head to the show notes for the link. Okay, so number two, we're going to talk about uh, kind of a similar experience, but a little different. So this was a new experience. They went to Disney on Ice. So it, it's a big, a big experience, right? Lots going on, lots very crowded. You walk into a different environment that's dark and cold and, and all kinds of different things. And, and so I'm going to read this question too. So the child immediately went into flight mode, wanting to go back home. So it was an over an hour drive there, pushing me to turn back, crying. She's been doing so much better in situations like this. 
that I've relaxed a little bit in preparing her. Any tips on what to do in a moment like this? We did slowly walk and I try, I calmly talked to her and she was thrilled once we were in our seats. So I just want to say you already know what to do proactively. You talk with usually you front load her, you prepare for these situations and it seems to help her a lot. Great. This time you didn't, you just forgot, didn't think about it. Or maybe sometimes I've had it happen where they seem so excited about it. I don't feel like they need a lot of support walking into it. And then we get there and it's like, whoa, what, what's going on? You know, what happened? So what to do in the moment? I honestly, it seems like you did a great job. You slowed down and I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, and y'all were able to get to your seats and she was able to enjoy it. She was able to do the hard thing and and get over that hump. So before I talk about what to do in that moment, I just want to say, you know, this is a great learning opportunity to use as a moment of reflection of like, Hey, remember when we got to Disney on ice? Do you remember what that, what that was like? If she, what she says, yeah, you seem like really scared. You didn't want to go in what she says. And then you went in and you sat down and what did you think about it once it started? Did you like it? Was it fun? So maybe you were a little nervous. So this is actually a word we taught um, our six-year-old, nearsighted, where you're really excited for something, but you're also very nervous about it. And he just, he told me, I think it was for his first t-ball game, actually. And then there was another thing that happened more recently. It was a social event. I'm totally blanking. It may have been the start of the school year where he was like, he goes, mommy, I'm feeling really nearsighted to go. Like I'm nervous because I don't know my teachers, but I'm excited because I know some of my friends that are going to be in my class. I said, wow, but you're feeling two things at once like that. And you know, it might feel a little scary because you're a little nervous. It might feel a little scary when you walk in, you're going to be able to walk through the fear to get to the, the fun stuff, the exciting stuff. You can do that. So I might use this as a really powerful teaching tool for her too, to kind of talk about how, you know, really upset or what were you thinking about what was nerve-wracking about it for you what felt scary or overwhelming you know get a little more information about that experience and then fight and you still were able to walk through it and sit down and then you had a really great time so that can become a point of reference for maybe the next time she's nearsighted about something we use it for like trying a new water slide is a great example of this we go to like a local water park and they tried a couple new slides the last time we went we talked about being recited jabari jump is one of my favorite books to recommend i'm like kicking myself i need to write this down for you so i can post it is a great book to use as springboard for this discussion it's one of my favorite books to read with my kids to talk about this and yeah so that's all the the responsive stuff after to kind of just help with future situations so the in the moment you said it you slowed down now i first want to in that moment just we need to practice self-compassion for ourselves the first acknowledge like really this is what we're going to do right now i'm feeling frustrated because this is not what i was expecting i thought she was going to really love this and now i'm dealing with a freak out this is not what I was expecting. And it's really hard right now. And that moment of self-compassion, we're, we're not judging our reaction. We're not judging our child for having their reaction. We're being compassionate to ourselves first. Like it makes sense. This is frustrating. 
this is a lot of time for us to drive and come here. We spent a lot of money on these tickets. She was really excited about doing this. This was supposed to be a fun thing. I talk about this with like theme parks too, like going to Disney, you know, we can't predict what's going to set our kid off or be overstimulating for them sometimes. And so the first thing is to be compassionate because only when we extend compassion to ourselves, can we extend compassion to them. And in that moment, what she needs is that compassion and validation. And it's not even something we have to say. It's just this energy we're extending. And so then what the visual that helps me, and I did not come up with this, this I learned on a Brene Brown podcast, is having a soft front and a strong back. So the compassion is like we're softening to our kids, we're slowing down, maybe we're like bringing them into us, pausing and getting on their level, and we're continuing to move forward confidently. We have a strong backbone at the pace that they're willing to go. So that means we're slowing down and going at their pace. This might mean you wind back up in the car because with every step you take forward, they escalate more. And we've got to practice more self-compassion there because dang, is that frustrating. But slowly with time and trust and experience and confidence that they're going to build as they grow, develop and experience more of these situations with a soft front being met with a soft front and strong back, they're going to be more and more willing to move forward. And then, you know, sometimes too, it's happened where riding that wave So the immediate goal, we can't have the immediate goal to get her in there. We can't have the immediate goal to fix it, make it better, whatever. We've got to have the immediate goal of just riding the wave. And like I said, it might mean we wind back up in the car. It might mean we can slowly make steps towards the seat to get there. And then in the moment, you know, when she was in the seat, you know, we're having a good time being like, wow, I'm so glad you trusted me to come sit so we could do this together. Look at that. You were unsure and you did it. And now we're having so much fun. And that's all I would talk about it for like in the moment. We're just putting a little bookmark there. We're just in their brain. So she'll have a point of reference. Maybe we can bring it up again. Like I talked responsibly outside of the moment. And maybe when we feel it building in another similar experience, we can use this situation to build that confidence in her. So I love that question. Number three, we're talking about meal time. And I love that you and your your, your husband had this expectation of what you will and, you know, your kids will and you won't eat. And so I pulled up, I put posted pictures um, and I'm going to share the screen so it goes on the recording so you guys can see this for point of reference because it is in the Facebook group. This is the screen that I want to share. This is the dinner plate for kids. And the... Other picture that I posted was was my plate for dinner. So it was like a Greek salad thing. It was a HelloFresh meal. It was like meat, beef burgers, feta cheese, and then um, you're supposed to make a big Greek salad. So this was my plate. Okay, everything was mixed together, and the burger was just right on top. Now for my other child, who's really tricky to do, I always like we deconstruct the meal a little bit because. Mixing all the food together is very intimidating for children. You can't tell what it is, right? And we think about their natural wiring, just being suspicious of food. That makes sense as an important survival mechanism to be suspicious of something before you put it in our mouth. Because if you just eat wild berries off the bush, they could be poisonous and you could die. (laughs) Okay, so it makes a lot of sense that our children are just naturally suspicious 
of food. And so you'll notice I did not give him the big salad bowl. Now, this was still what we were eating. It also was not all put together. I had it indifferent. So he could mix it if he wanted to. He could pick out what he was familiar to him and he wanted to eat. And so that's point number one. Here's the bigger picture thing. It's called division of responsibility. I did not invent this. Ellen Sadier Adder is how you say her last name. She's the person who wrote this and division of responsibility. You can Google that concept and find out a lot more about it. But it's basically, I decide as a parent what goes on your plate and you decide what to eat. And so when we start doing that, I as a parent am deciding you're getting essentially the same thing that I'm eating, but I'm changing how it is presented to you to make it more palatable. Okay, so that's step number one. Step number two is making sure that there's definitely a yes food on there, something that your child is going to love. For my child in particular, the yes food is the pita bread and the tomatoes and usually the dressing. Those are his yes foods. His maybe foods would be things like the lettuce. Sometimes he does eat salad. Sometimes he doesn't. The cucumbers, sometimes he dips them, sometimes he doesn't. And the beef, he's hit or miss on the meat. I got one kid that would eat like three of those and then another child who's less inclined. Okay, so I'm presenting him with a plate that I chose what goes on it and now he's going to choose what he can eat it. And I'm purposely intentionally trying to set him up for success. And I call them like bridge food. So just to get him starting to eat, what is something he will enthusiastically start eating? So sometimes I'll put like strawberries are an enthusiastic yes food that'll go on his plate. In this instance, it was the pita. And then we're sitting down and we're all eating together. And I might say something like, oh man, you've got all the pieces to make a salad. You can mix that all together. Do you want to mix it together? Yes or no? And he actually, I I should have taken an after picture of this because I was very doubtful of what he was actually going to eat. And he ate about I'd say 60 to 70% of this, which I was pretty impressed at. I don't think he ate all of the lettuce, the hummus, the cucumbers, or the feta. He ate little nibbles of the feta, little nibbles of the cucumber, no hummus, and some of the lettuce. And then he ate everything else. He actually ate the meat, which was a miracle. That's part number one and two is just be intentional with how you're laying out the plate. And the other tip for laying out the plate, notice how I cut everything up into small bites. I broke up the patty so that it's small bites, sliced up the tomatoes instead of like bigger slices or bigger chunks into smaller chunks. I even sliced up the pita bread. It was like one little mini pita. I actually sliced it up into strips. Same with the cucumber. And instead of having circles that are cut up, I put them into splitters so they were smaller. Because what that is, is it makes the food more approachable. It can also make it more fun if we're talking about like dipping into a sauce, like the salad dressing, he can dip the cucumber in there. He can dip the pita bread in there. He can take a smaller bite of the patty. That is a small bite of that is much more approachable than having to pick up a whole hunk of meat and take a bite out of it. So that's something that I found makes a huge, a surprisingly huge difference in my children's willingness to eat new foods or eat things on their plate. So those are kind of my big tips, all right, is practice division of responsibility. You choose what goes on the plate. They choose how much to make it. Throw in an enthusiastic yes food that is on their plate. Deconstruct things that are all mixed together, even like tacos, salads, even like casseroles. If you can leave out some of those elements so that you can segment them in the plate and the child can 
see what they are, uh, work on that suspicion, be more accepting of it and figure out what parts of it they like. And then smaller bites and smaller portions. So this is my big thing. Actually, my husband and I, I have to constantly remind him if he's making the kids plates is don't put on the full amount that you expect the child to eat. That's very intimidating. So it's almost like sometimes if I'm so intimidated by something, I won't even start it. I won't even try. I'm just so overwhelmed at what the pro, like what I have to do. So I'll just put like, if I was unsure he would eat any of the cucumber, notice I put like one slice that was sliced up into small things. I didn't put six rounds of cucumber in there. Now I know cucumbers are a home run for my oldest. So I might put six in there that he'll eat, but he's not big on tomatoes. So I might only put like two bites on there. And then I'm not triggered as a parent for wasting food. I hate when food is wasted. Those are all my mealtime, not all my mealtime tips, but those are like the major ones that I think can be super helpful for you around mealtime. Okay, so number four, I think four, is noticing when children get older. Yeah, and a lot of kids too that are highly sensitive or just sensitive children are very perceptive. They don't like noticing language. And this is actually something from conscious discipline that I don't do as classically written by them is is using perpetual noticing like I notice you know your shoulders are going up like this you seem mad are you feeling mad and it's like annoying and not even just the older kids some children even from a young age really don't like that so I notice more subtly with them depending on the child I might just if I see them like getting like this I might just put my hands on their shoulder and like breathe into it I might notice just by watching and making empathetic noises like, huh, oh, yeah. And sometimes that's enough. Sometimes that's too much. Remember, we taught if you need more about this whole process, go back in the Get Silly Challenge and watch the attunement video because so much of this is just attuning to their experience and mirroring their experience a little bit. That's what noticing is all about to help them build that self awareness. And so, if we can build that in other ways, we need to attune to them. So, I actually did a whole section. The Get Silly Challenge with Kristen Kobabe. She's an adolescent expert. And she was talking about joining kids in disgust and how powerful of a connection that can be. And just simply like, and this is big for older kids because they're wired to be disgusted more often, according. I was like, oh, that makes sense. But ugh, yeah, ew, I get that. And that's just sharing in their experience. So think about noticing as we're trying to build self-awareness for them. And we don't just have to build self-awareness through noticing. We can build it through sharing their experience, observing it. I just recorded a podcast with my mom about the power of sitting side by side, mirroring a little bit with them. And and the other thing I do, especially for older kids or highly sensitive kids, is I lead with something like, you want to know what I was thinking? Or you want to know what I noticed? And I'm inviting them to say, no, I don't care what you noticed. No, I don't want to hear it right now. I'm inviting them to say what or huh well I noticed last time we did this it was really frustrating and when we decided to switch spots it became easier you want to try and switch spots but you're you're inviting them to say no and put on the brakes but they're not ready to do that and that gives them more power control it also helps disarm them a little bit in the very beginning they're less 
defensive because you gave them the option to say no. Okay. And if they say no, no, I don't care what you noticed or maybe they don't even say anything. It's just that back at you. You're like, all right, I just thought it'd be helpful. And then sometimes a few minutes will come around. Sometimes they don't. You planted a seed. Sometimes they'll come back around to it. So those are kind of my noticing tips for older or, or more prickly kids, maybe kids who get more defensive because they're sensitive. Okay, number five, screaming. Screaming's a fun one, highly triggering, especially when it takes over the whole house. And I have a kiddo that is prone to scream, especially recently, with an infant who gets really scared, is very sensitive to sound because of his traumatic beginning. And he freaks out when his brother freaks out. Great. So I empathize very deeply with you on that. And what I've had to do is if he's starting to scream at me, so there's words, I'm thinking there's like words and yelling. It's not just like the noise of screaming. I walk into a different room. I've gotten to a point sometimes where I walk, you know, we are on one story. So you've kind of got to play with this and make this, you know, accessible logistically to your family. But you know, maybe you walk upstairs or walk down to the basement and I'll just kind of Typically, I don't even say much. I'll just kind of walk in his room and he'll follow me because he's yelling at me, right? And so now at least I've contained it. So it's not controlling the entire house. He doesn't have power over the entire house in that moment. And I'm in the room. And again, attuning is really important. This is not going to work for work for all children. You're going to have to change your verbiage and change how much you say in those moments sometimes. But to my child, I'm able to say something like, you're yelling right now and I want to help, but I will not engage in the yelling. And then usually he'll yell for a few more minutes. And usually, honestly, it's probably not even minutes, probably like a minute. And then he'll switch into something like crying. He'll collapse. He's letting out. Think of the times that we yell. We're letting something out. We need a cathartic release. So the movement helps even just moving environments, moving a situation, moving our bodies, help with that, finishing it off. And we're doing the boundary. The boundary is not, you can't yell like that, right? A boundary is not a demand of someone else. It's what we're doing. And so when they're yelling, my boundary is, I don't like to be yelled at. I'm not engaging in this. And so I'm taking the power away from the yelling. I've taken him out of the situation. You don't have to carry him. He'll probably follow you. Invite him to follow you. Come on. I'm going over here. You're going to keep yelling at me. I'm going over here, dude. You can come with me or not. We're not giving that yelling any power. We're continuing to move our bodies. Their bodies changing the environment can help with that regulation piece that they probably need that cathartic release. And then, and I've even known to like go outside and I swear outside's magic. Usually that dissipates it very quickly. And then, then I'll lay the boundary down of I'm here and I want to help, but I'm not willing to engage in the yelling. And we're teaching them how to stay regulated in that moment by regulating ourselves going internally. I've had to walk away sometimes and then walk back into it. It's hard. The yelling is hard. I believe I do have a yelling behavior bite that I've either done on the podcast or that's inside that was exclusive for core members. I need to check that out and see if I have that available for you. Moving on, this is our last question. So we'll say it's number six. Uh, how to handle when your kiddo says no to you when asked if it's time to leave the playground or time to get out of the pool or eat dinner? <laughs> Give an awful 
warnings. Um, it's so frustrating when it happens in front of her little buddies because then the buddies jump in and, and practice, you know, copy the no behavior. And also they've started to do it at school or she's done it to school for the teachers as well. First thing I want to point out is one, our kids, this makes a lot of sense because I have some background information about your daughter and what's going on in her world right now. She's just changed. She's in the same school, but she's changed campuses. She's changed classrooms. She's got new classmates. There are wildly different expectations in this classroom versus the primary classroom. She's gone from top dog in the classroom to bottom of the pyramid. And so there is a feeling of helplessness that happens in this first year. And this can happen. I don't think this is exclusive to Montessori. This can happen in any big transition that our kids, during any big transition that our kids experience. There's just the world is happening to me and I don't really know my place. I don't feel empowered to influence it a lot. So they're going to dig in where they can. So I would first just start paying attention to what power, control, and influence she has in situations like that, especially during transitions, especially on play dates when you know it's easy for the friends to get involved and jump on the bandwagon, preemptively pointing out what control and power she has. Hey, I know it's usually really hard to go when you're having a good time. The thing is, we've got to go because it's a school night or we've got to go meet daddy somewhere or something like that. So when you get out, are you going to want to change into your clothes? Are you going to want to keep your bathing suit on or something like that? We're helping prime the brain and we're pointing out where her power and control is. That's kind of an aside to what in the moment strategies I can suggest for you. So I wanted to point out the big transition because front loading and pointing out the power and control thing is is going to help dissipate all of it. And I think this will also dissipate as she gets more comfortable during this big transition. Helping her also find something simple to transition to or a natural transition. So let's say, you know, it's wrapping up time to go. I almost always try and embed a snack because let's say there's something in the pool, like I'm not going to jump in and drag you out of the pool. I just can't do that. What are they going to be more excited to come out to do? They're going to be more excited to come out and have an icy pop. You know, they're going to be more excited to come out and have a snack. They're going to be more excited to come out and go up to the playroom. Like, it's just, it's easier to transition. Like, think about these transitions practically. I always do this on play dates. We've met at the park and it's like, oh, we're going to have a snack time and then we're going to leave from the snack table. Here's the other thing that's a key piece to this for you. And then we'll talk about the teachers, but confident momentum. So there's two pieces to this idea of confident momentum. One is, we got to be the assertive leader. So the easiest phrase for this is not, are you ready to go? Are you ready to get out? It's time to go. Okay. It's time to get out of the pool. Okay. Or we're going to eat snack and then I'm going to pack up and it's going to be time to go. Or I'm not even going to have snack and pack up. I'm packing up before the snack. So when it's time to go, this confident momentum can carry forward. So if you'll recall, I'll use the park example because we went to the park together and the kids all sat at the table and had snacks. And while they were sitting at the table and having snacks, I had already started packing up before they had come over to sit and eat. And while they were engaged and playing at the table and eating, I put everything in the car. I got the bag, my stuff, the waters, everything. And I put it in the car. That way, when it came time to make that transition, all I had to do was 
my 100% focus and momentum was on them. I'm not having conversations with other parents then. I'm not trying to make plans. I'm not answering my phone. I'm not doing, I'm not gathering up and packing up stuff. I'm creating the momentum too. Okay, after the snack, it's time to go. I'm right there. All right, you know, there's only a little bit of snack left. This is the last, this is the last bit out of the bag. Then after this, we're going to say goodbye to friends. Oh, we're all done. All right, time to go. What do you want to listen to in the car? Do you want to listen to a podcast or music? What music do you want to listen to? All right. So I did a few things. That's the confident momentum, the confident leadership. It's giving her power and control of what she actually has power and control over. Being the confident leader and using that assertive voice, not pretending like she has a choice whether or not we're leaving. The choice is what music do you want to listen to in the car? So I'm curious because I know who the teachers are. If they're asking her, do you want to do math? And she's saying, no, thank you. Instead of, it's time to do math. Come with me. I'll help you pick out a lesson. Which one do you want to do? Oh, you don't want to do any of them? All right. If you don't want to do any of them on the shelf, you can do your workbook. I can show you what's in your workbook. And then helping her get started. That's the confident momentum and also empowering her with the choice that she has. So lots of pieces there. And my guess is, is that it'll dissipate as the transition kind of smooths over. But yes, it is. It's frustrating when we're constantly doing this dance while they are adjusting. All right, guys, that is all for the Q&A today. That was a ton of information being thrown at you, but I hope it was super helpful. We're gearing up for October next month. This is a great topic to kind of lead into that. We're going to talk about confident leadership, confident momentum, boundaries, limit setting, all that good stuff is coming up. So stay tuned and have a great rest of your week. Thanks so much for joining me for this conversation. I hope the reframes gave you some tangible shifts to bring into your own daily parenting experience. If you're interested in getting your own questions answered, just like I did here, head over to the core membership site and join our community. I love that we can all relate to each other's experiences, even if we aren't going through the exact same scenario we still gain so much value and wisdom when we can zoom out and highlight the common threads. We often end up normalizing so many parenting struggles while we grow and learn together. To learn more, you can head to www.kayleekukla.com backslash core C-O-R or head to the show notes for the link. Thanks so much for being here and have a wonderful week. 